Hello, children. Oh my god, it feels so good to be saying that. What's cracking, everybody? Welcome to episode 36. I don't know what season it is. It's been a while since I've recorded one of these. Um, Yeah, welcome to the show. I'm back with guests for the next little while. There are some good episodes coming. If you've if you're one of the few who's watched like the solos that I've done, sincerely thank you. It's it's crazy to see even like 30, 40 views on those. Um yeah, this episode is with a man who needs no introduction at this point. If you're one of the two people who doesn't know who Sebastian is, he's one half of the team over at No Maintenance. And yeah, honestly that's pretty much it. We talk a lot about like fashion and the start of No Maintenance, so if you're unaware of that. There's some of that as well, and yeah, enjoy the episode. All right, Sebastian, so how did you get interested in fashion? So, like, I think it goes back, um, it's 2021 now. I think it first begun, like, my actual interest in pursuing, like, fashion in terms of this niche menswear lane that's been growing, I think, was in about 2012. I was in high school. I believe. And um, obviously, I, I, like my dad was always into fashion. He was wearing Comme des Garçons and all these things back in the 80s. And so I, there was some sort of awareness there. But obviously, when you're in high school, you don't really have it. And back then, too, the, you know, there wasn't all the resources that these kids have now. Like, uh, I didn't make this mental connection between my dad wearing fly shit back in the day and what, what I ended up getting interested in. But I think that it, this was in a combination of like, what, like, was popular in, in like pop culture at the time because obviously looking back at the style that I was into when I was 15 it was horrible but um I think it was a mixture of that and like you had all these internet forums starting to pop up and like I never really participated in some of the more niche ones like uh like Kanye to the and like I know fear of god like Facebook uh, we were talking about that had, had like a Facebook group and I wasn't really deep in those but I think that Growing up in the Bay Area, there was a big move in about early 2010s into menswear, like related to like denim boots. You had like all the fashion guys wearing like Red Wings and raw denim. I think that there was like a lot of Canadian brands too, actually like Naked and Famous and whatever were popping off at that time. And I think they owned a brand called Unbranded, which was like their cheap raw denim line. And I think I just started to get into like I saw like photos on I think it was like right around the time Instagram happened, but it wasn't popping. And I would go on Reddit a little bit, but like the style on Reddit was obviously like, it was like a slightly older crowd than when you're 15. But um, I think I just got in through menswear, like traditional menswear. And it kind of like, as like, I was just in that age, like, well, well, old, just old enough, like, of, well, things became super, super like contemporary. We were always like right there. So like it started with menswear and then you started to see like, few like menswear and j crew and everybody was into that and like everybody was looking at like what the gq guys were pushing like like fiber boots raw denim chambray shirts j crew kill shots like that was like the uniform and i think that kind of transitioned for me when i got to college 18 19 like then i could actually i had a job i could afford to buy the the denim and the menswear i liked but that only lasted a year by the time i had like all the stuff i wanted like the whole John Elliott athleisure post menswear wave had taken off. And so like everyone was pressed for 
long scoop teas and Jerry, it was the Jerry Lorenzo effect, uh, you know, effect. And, you know, I was living in LA and it was hot here as well at that point. So it's like, you're not really trying to wear like a, like a parka in LA and like raw denim is horrible for that. You know, you want to wear like some light washed distressed jeans and whatever, but there is a shop in LA called Wasteland and it's, um, it's like a, not really a thrift store. It's like a curated, uh, luxury goods shop. And, um, it's terrible now. It's all picked through. You can't go anymore because everybody goes there to flip it from there or their prices or whatever is terrible. But for men's stuff, 2016, I would go there. And I, I, I remember some some rapper, I, somehow I saw that someone styled Kanye in a helmet lang jacket and Rihanna as well for that video with Paul McCartney. I forget the name of the song. And I just had this awareness of helmet lang. And I remember being on Essence and copying new label helmet. Little did I know that it wasn't like the real thing, but I copped some jeans on the Essence sale like in 2020, no, I'm crazy, 2017, 2016, right as I transitioned out of this kind of streetwear, whatever, which I never dove too, too far into. But um, I remember finding a waist on a couple of Helmet Lang pieces and paying like their helmet pieces there. There were Rick Owens pieces and there were like whatever you could think of. And like the prices were all right. Right. I mean, grailed, we were all on grailed as well, but like, I wasn't on grailed, like getting super, super into the niche stuff, you know? And like, I feel like that just kind of begun the journey. And obviously when we started like doing, when I started uh, curating and sourcing Japanese stuff, it just made it easier to have clothes around because, you know, we were selling them. I think that like that could kind of cover the basis of it. Obviously my interest in clothing has kind of completely, it's my whole life now. You know, it's very different than when you're 17, 18, 19, falling in love with like style and like the, the aesthetic of it. But when it's a business, because I would say my relationship with clothing is fundamentally different than it was seven, eight years ago, you know? Absolutely. How is growing up in the Bay Area and like, how is like living in, in LA? Has that shaped your style in any way and to what end? I would say um, the Bay Area hasn't necessarily like influenced my style in the way that like the Bay Area style is. Obviously it did in some capacity when I was younger because the Bay Area is pretty, it's fairly like a melting pot, not like New York or like, you know, but like my high school was really big, like almost 4,000 kids and super, super mixed. Like, yeah, I think it was, it was you know, really evenly mixed with, you know, different people from different, you know, both ethnic and or, or racial backgrounds as well as class. So I think when I was younger, it definitely influenced my style. It was like, I was really trying to rock with whatever people were wearing. It was Jordans, it was baggy 501s and it was skinny jeans before that, you know. I think my, my style as it is today completely has evolved out of Los Angeles because I became an adult in Los Angeles. You know what I mean? And it's like, there's a lot of things that like I like that we just can't do here because it's so hot. You know, it's hot year round. I'm like, for example, the Bottega, Bottega Veneta Kiwi boots that came out this year. Like they're, uh, they're like a rain boot, heavy lug, whatever, not fully lug, but I want them and I like them and I consider buying them, but it's like, I'll never ever cop uh, Bottega boots right now because it's like, it's insane. I'm wearing Birkenstocks every single day because it's nine months out of the year, global warming, all these things, the city is getting so warm, so hot. So I would say LA is pretty laid back. You know, I, I really like to take influence from like other cities as well. Obviously, like I've, I've been to Paris a bunch. I really, really like the Parisian style. Like there's a boutique there called the Broken Arm that really gets like all the, the cool new label stuff. And I keep an eye on like what they have. And obviously Tokyo style is, is really, really, you know, really, really locked in as well. But like, 
I would say for me, LA is relaxed, you know, especially like in the neighborhood we live in, like there's always jokes about LA style being trash in the, in the general statement of it being trash. And to some end, I, I agree with that, but like in our neighborhood, it's like, you'll be in line in the coffee shop and everyone is super, super like 2021 fitted. They're like wearing all the brands off of Essence right there in the line. They're wearing Solomon's and they got, you know, you name it, or you see so-and-so with the Bottega because there is this fashion and, and entertainment and celebrityhood are super intertwined. And when things are super intertwined, there's trickle down effect to the neighborhood because people are going to the same events and parties as, you know, people in entertainment. And so they want to look and match it. And, you know, thing by LA, there's a lot of luxury shopping here. So I would say it is laid back here. Sorry, that's kind of a tangent, but I, I think because of the laid back nature of what LA is, definitely influenced me. Like I don't have a big wardrobe, you know, I'm like, I got a couple things in each category. You know, we, 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 this goes largely to like what we do with our company. It's like we, we curate off of color and texture and shape. We, we're not going off of brand necessarily, not anymore at least. And I would say for me, for myself living in LA, I just, I like how the style doesn't have to be this big pressure. Like everyone in, in New York is fitted. You're walking around Soho and everyone's really, really like you get out the train and you like come up and everyone looks really cool. And but if it's, there's a high level of presentation, I almost feel like the style that I'm rocking with in 2021 is like not, is kind of bummy compared to like what's happening in New York or whatever, you know? So I definitely think my, my style has come from like being in LA, but at this point, globalization is it's so rapid. The, 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 the current waves of fashion are so intertwined that like if someone does a certain style in whatever country, if it's cool, it's going to get to any city in, in the world pretty quick. And it's hard not to notice if someone's doing something cool in Korea. It's hard to, not, to notice if someone's doing something cool in, you know, the UK or in France or whatever, whatever country. But I think LA moves fast. I think trend cycles are pretty, pretty quick. So I think that's one thing like, you know, in Copenhagen, everybody's still dressing like this kind of like neutral palette, like Acne Studios vibe, or our legacy. And it's like, it's been like that. It's been consistent. In LA, I think it, it, the, the trend moves so fast, just like the seasons of entertainment or TV shows or whatever with the media. So uh, it's like a long way of saying, I feel like my, my style was largely influenced by like just the environment we're in. And Instagram, it's hard not to, you know, talk, toss one up to like social media at this point. Absolutely. Know? I don't know, like, I had a bit of a conversation with a few friends and we were kind of just like, quite frankly, we were kind of bitching about like how annoying Toronto weather is. Cause like, it's so cold in the, in the winter and then it's so hot in the summer and you yeah. have maybe, maybe four or five months where you can like really dress and like with like layers and stuff. But you just gave me an interesting perspective where I don't know, I wouldn't want to live in a, a climate where it's just one, one temperature, like throughout the yeah. whole year. Cause I, I feel like that's really stifling for like developing your style and like finding it is like, I mean, I think like, don't get me wrong. There are like, LA is a micro, is, a, is like a microclimate. So obviously there's fluctuations in the weather. Like it's not super, it, it just, it, you, you, it's the weird thing. And it's also with the irregularities caused by global warming. I mean, it really, I have really seen the change even in seven years living here, you know, it's like, you get cold days in the winter and it's it is a desert so it's like the evenings will be freaking freezing and i'll touch on the bay area in a second but it's like you you can layer here but nine months a year you can't 
or you might like like last, last night we could like put on like a sweater when i stepped outside it's like oh it, it was like fairly cold but it had been 90 degrees in the day mind you it's april or i guess it's may 1st now but the other thing i will say though like i i, I feel what you're saying about toronto too but like i all my homies from canada who live here are always like man i just talked to my boy in montreal and he looks like a ninja he's got so many fucking things wrapped up on him and it's freezing and it's april but um i'll tell you one thing the bay area is even more of like a like a kind of current microclimate because it's on the water and it's colder and um it's like you'll you'll wear like a full you, it gets cold there like i get actually really chilly there like colder than even if i'm in a in the east coast because mentally i'm prepared for the extremes of heat in the summer or cold in the winter so i'm like i'm layered up in new york in the bay area you know you might be in like like a puffer or like whatever people are like a fleece or something and then 10 a.m hits and the sun peaks out over the fog and you're hot and you're taking off you need to have a tea which is weird laughing about this too because we just uh put together a big like uh flannel uh collect grouping yesterday and it, i was like man why are we buying flannels why are we like putting together a, like a curation of flannels because it's 91 right now outside but i talked to my dad yesterday and it was raining in the bay area talked to my homies in new york raining in new york you know it was nice weather but definitely still flannel weather in other parts of the other parts of the country don't get me wrong and the flannel for using it as an example is very bay area it's like you throw a pendleton or something on over a tee because it's warm enough for you in the fog but you're not needing to layer up in a puffer you know what i mean but you know you adjust i really love that i you know you can rock shorts all the time here or like if you're running an errand and you're not trying to get dressed up or whatever like you're really really super chill it's really comfortable absolutely you need ac man like that, that's the main thing i just turned it off because it's loud but i'm like we got ac running you know no doubt but, yeah um how did no main how did like no maintenance which is like for those of you for those who for those three people who don't know is your um vintage reselling platform i guess that's how how i would describe it yeah so, i would actually say at this point it's it's become more of a brand to, um sure. i mean we're still doing vintage but mm-hmm. we like the the ambitions of, of the company are is beyond just being like a like a what you might even call like i hate the term reselling even though we are for me i'm like always like reselling in my head is like flipping like sneakers off the sneaker yeah. app you know what i mean but um how do, so yeah please finish your question but uh, yeah that, i would say that it's pretty accurately described like where we've been for sure yeah so how, how did no maintenance come to be then so no maintenance begun out of like uh so for those of you also listening who don't know like my my partner ro um he and I both used to do independent curations of, you know, the same stuff. Like it was different before we, we knew each other. Like I was always like, like a, a helmet Lang guy, helmet Lang and Comme de Garçon and Yoji. Like those were my, my big three and I always did them. And then um, Ro and I were linked up through, through a friend of mine in high, who I went to high school with, who went to college with Ro. And he just used to see us both posting like random Japanese shit. And he was like, oh, you guys should connect. And uh, a couple of years ago, he connected us. And at the time, I was like, just in the midst, we were both in the midst of growing like our like Japanese curation. And I was talking to him like, like I was designing rings and jewelry as well. And I wanted like, I was just trying to figure out what we were going to do besides like getting into like curating stuff. It was a different time, even two, three years ago, because of this rapid acceleration of like awareness. But 
I was maybe like I was importing like at that this week when we met I was importing like organic tea from Taiwan and like I was gonna do like a minimalist tea line and like mix it like not t-shirts for you listen like literally teas like various types of like white teas and uh, I was gonna do like a tea line and like jewelry and kind of just figuring out this home goods vibe but honestly starting a brand is horrible by yourself it's so much time in your head and I've done various iterations of it Fast forward to Ro and I meeting, we're talking, he came to visit LA because um, he went he he went to college in SB, he had friends here, whatever. So Ro was here, we linked up, we went out for drinks, we were chilling and just our friendship grew. And we went to Japan together four months after that for a month. And uh, we were just in Tokyo. And at some point we just were talking about um, him moving to LA because he had been here for college. I had been in LA in the neighborhood we live in now for a minute. And he moved here literally the week before the pandemic started. And um, by moving here, we were both doing independent curations and Ro was always like really deep in undercover. He was into capital before me, like he had a crazy boot collection. He was selling tons of Dior. And, uh, you know, I think we influenced each other. Like when he moved, I started getting into capital and obviously our trip to Tokyo, we were really rocking with capital, but and I think I influenced him. Like he hadn't owned any helmet Lang before that. So he started copying helmet and kind of became this mixed bag of like, there was no separation for us curating, but how do you combine two independent curated shops? And we also noticed like the, the super, super rapid, like desire for vintage. Like it started to like really be like this, the style of people it was like outweighing like the desire for like what people might call archive goods at this point. You know what I mean? So that first week before things shut down, we started to like develop and do our research on like how we could develop like some meaningful connections in the industry of vintage or, you know, that that realm that's completely different from like, you know, doing niche sourcing and developing like private relationships with people who have collections and whatever, you know. And we, we started it in March and we were just kind of flipping teas and whatever off of our story for like a side hustle and you know everyone was in the house at that point and there was not much to do you know we weren't seeing anybody at all and uh, it was just we're getting teas and we started getting some denim as well um we we're only getting japanese levis at the time because we couldn't leave the house and we had we had a, a guy in japan who could get us them and um at some point i think we took a pause because it became to COVID, like, like no one could do anything by like, you know, this time last year, like we weren't going anywhere. We we're super tucked in the house. But I think in July, basically four months after we started no maintenance, we started to like, okay, let's, let's act. Like things were opening up in LA again, like in terms of like the, the regulations regarding like, you know, going out and like, like we were going to meet people or source or whatever that was, you know, and came that summer we started sourcing going heavy on like pushing it on instagram but honestly we really didn't know the shape it was going to take until i remember we were both back with our families in december and we were, we were texting and i was like man and this is also after we had both done independent um designs for our like like we can touch on this later but like the the shirt that i worked on and the pants i worked on and wrote made a jacket and you know, we, we both noticed like this kind of downtrend on like the ability to find archive goods as well and like what it meant to be sourcing those things. And honestly, like we just wanted to collect the stuff. It's like, I don't want to give up a really fantastic jacket that fits me for a small profit, The you know? And um, 
were texting and we we're just like, man, I guess we just needed to start working more closely than ever. I think that's like the words we said. And that first week of January, we came back. And I think at this time we had 4,000 followers about four, three, four months ago. And it had been like pretty steady. Like we had a really good, like, cult, like not cult following, but like devoted following. Like we had people just tapping in with us every single day, buying stuff. Like we had people placing like 15 orders a month for tea when we had like not many followers, you know? And we had this, we were literally just doing like denim and teas blank tees and I feel like and I, and I will say like I've seen the trickle down effect now too of like the way we were shooting our like our like stacks of like color palette blank tees now everybody's got the blank tees and we're not even doing blank tees but it's just funny because that's we literally were like all right we're gonna be blank guys because we were in the mindset of like wearing designer goods and we were in the mindset of sourcing like niche designer clothing for ourselves as well and it's like okay what do designer brands not do well they don't make t-shirts well and arguably they make denim poorly too, because you can't prove to me that St. Laurent denim is better than even the Levi's we get now. Maybe aesthetically, in like if the trend is right, you want a perfect skinny or whatever, like helmet line jeans are fantastic. Can't really find them that much. And people have already fucked with the hem on them at this point. So many of like the inseams are really short. So it's like, and helmet jean is based off of Levi's. The cut is a Levi's 501XX to the T. The fabric is just Italian, you know, cone mill denim, which is what Levi's was using from North Carolina or whatever in, in the U.S. up until 2002. So we, we, we exchanged these texts and we came back and we just were like, okay, cool. We got to do, do this to scale because the only way you have a real company and a real brand is by making stuff available for people to buy. You cannot be a brand that puts up five things a week. It's not a brand. It's like a hobby. You know what I mean? So for us, it's like, okay, how do we reach as many people as possible? And another thing I always see is like people ask us how we get so many things or how we are so like posting so constantly. I'm like, this is literally our jobs. You know, it's like, if you look at something like a 40 hour work week, this is our duties to do these things. It's literally our livelihood is to be finding men, um, uh, marketing and, you know, all of the, all the things, the steps that we take for the maintenance. So, you know, we work way more than 40 hours at this point, but it's kind of how, how the company began. And at this point, like it was originally always going to be the side project. And then it was kind of equal. And we were, we didn't know if we were going to do our designs. We were always talking about getting a showroom at this time, but we couldn't justify the price point on that. And then suddenly the response to like our take on minimalist vintage just kind of caught, you know, we had, like I said, we have 4,400 followers in mid January, January 15th. We had 10,000 followers in February. We had 20,000 in March or in April, excuse me, or like, like like last week or something. And now we're at 22K. So it's like, it's just, we saw what we were putting out there was getting a response. And it's like, to put it into perspective, the monthly visitors on No Maintenance is tenfold what our archives got, even at the peak. You know what I mean? Just the sheer number of people, individual people connecting with us. And ironically, the sheer number of big name people you know, when you're in archive, it was always like, okay, how can I get these pants onto Travis Scott? And like, everybody got some shit onto Travis Scott because his stylist is super cool and super tapped in. But like, how did that, how did, that was like the thing. So the next was like, you always were wondering, like, I'm in LA, various celebrities, you want to get a placement, whatever. Ironically, we get hit up now to just to the reach of no maintenance every single day at this point of like doing stylings and polls. And like, well, as soon as we're done here, I have to like put together like a press kit for, you know, some random person you know it's like so that, I would say that's the roundabout way of um how we started no maintenance in terms of like the the 
the motivation behind it as well as like bringing us together. And now we have a team we've built, you know, like we have a full-time employee working with us who, who's super, super dope. Name's Peter. He, like we couldn't do it without him at this point. And we have other people, like we got a photographer we bring in and we have a casting team that we're working with as well. Like we just have a lot of moving pieces around us now that it's no longer just me and Ro on the couch in the living room at our old place, like grinding, you know? Absolutely. This is, I feel like as of late, I think, I'm not sure if it's because of the pandemic or just because of the advent of, I know you hate the phrase, but vintage reselling platforms. It's because it's again, like I said, it's become a bit of a contentious topic. So can you tell me like, like what's, what is something that people don't really understand about the curation process for no maintenance? I will say people, as we've, <clears throat> excuse me, as we've gotten bigger, you know, and like we'll have like a photo that will get like a hundred thousand person reach. If you look at the stats, it brings in people who don't follow us, who comment on the, on the post or whatever, you know what I mean? Like who, I'll give an example, like in economic terms, you, you might have a teenager in rural Michigan, you know, like Midwest who comments, why, why would you buy jeans for said price when you can cop them for five or $10 at the thrift store in Michigan. And at this point, again, even if you're like in the Midwest, which apparently has good, you know, Americana vintage, if you're at Goodwill, which we never go to, people think we go to Goodwill, people think that we do stuff like that. We literally don't do thrifting to get our stuff because we're so like, like I said, we're, we do stuff to scale and if we're doing something, it has to be replicable and it has to be to our standards of high quality. So we get people commenting stuff like that, or like we have people commenting, oh, your jeans are from the 90s, from the 2000s. And it's like, we literally worked with Levi's to learn how to do the, the dating of our jeans. So none of our jeans, if you pull out, out of our 500 jeans that we keep all around are newer than 2001, which is when they switched over to poly tags, you know? And most of them are from 91 <clears throat> through 96. People don't understand that it's really difficult to get true 90s jeans. And they also don't understand that a price point that when it's curated is reflecting upon a lot of principles that are not the same as a pair of 2010 Levi's or 2015 Levi's that may even look good in a Goodwill in Michigan or whatever state it is. We live in LA, cost of living is probably five times the cost of doing business. Living is not even my example, but the cost of business is way more permitting sales tax everything and we do everything by the books so it's like just the sheer cost of running our business is something that i think people don't actually get because we're literally you know paying people for industrial cleaning we're we're we're, we're spending you know many dollars per unit to get it cleaned professionally and you know these are costs that we take on not for the business so it's like we have free shipping we have we have industrial cleaning we tag everything we'll we make sure that everything is, you know, up to our standards. If there's a, you know, a, we need, we might get it repaired if it's got a problem. So like, I think that people just don't understand the lengths that we are like, not other people, but we take pride in is putting together like a, a polished product, whether or not it's a used good or not. What we're putting out into the world is what we believe to be like a high quality product. I would never ever end my day thinking, wow, like, I can't believe we sold that piece for that price or whatever. Like I literally genuinely believe like 
when you, when you get the genes from us, like we're trying, we're going out of way above all of our competitors to make sure that like, and there will be errors, you know, because of our volume, like if like a measurement might be a quarter inch off and like we take a met, like we make amends or whatever, but like we go out of our way to do full, you know, measurements. We go out of our way to, like I said, get everything clean, make every, make sure everything is, we steam, after we get it clean, we steam it all. You know, and we get the photos and we, and we shoot everything. And like, there's just a lot of labor involved is like what I'm trying to say. You know, I'm not saying, whoa, is me. Like we love, love the work. But I think that people, especially those who aren't tapped in with us, because it's not like we're having trouble um, moving our products. Like we, we have an incredible response, you know. But I, I, I think people just don't realize the length that we're going into beyond our competitors, even to make sure that our product is super, super like high quality and locked in, you know. And I think that like, it's just because we're in this phase of like the lines between being a vintage shop, between a, between high high fashion brands and houses and streetwear brands, it's so blurred, been blurred at, for so long. So like if we're shipping you, here's another aspect of it. We get custom uh, re recycle upcycled boxes in our color of our choice, branded postcards. Everything is wrapped up tightly, tissue card, free shipping. We shoot basically everything UPS ground. So like, like I said, there's all these hidden costs that people don't think about, you know, that like if you have versus going and finding like the random steel in your city. And the other thing is we're selling abroad. We sell internationally, man. Like there's demand in Canada. Like we sell a lot to Canada. You can't get US vintage as much. We sell to Japan. We sell to tons to China. We sell to all over Europe. We sell to, you know, the Gulf, you know, like we sell everywhere. And most of these places can't get good vintage and they're willing to like, tap in with us because we make everything so easy and accessible and like we get so many messages a day like our dms are just unbelievably stacked up and we still go out of our way to try and answer as many as possible you know what i mean so i think that like that's one thing that like as we you know we're putting we're trying to open up the spotlight into what we do more and more like i just want to make it very clear to like the people who are supporting us or even on the fence of supporting us that like we're really trying to make sure like what we're offering is like a high quality product regardless of if it's vintage or a used good you know like what you're getting in the mail is coming with a lot of care and thought put into it to make sure that you get it you know we ship same day like we packed 200 orders this week we're shipping boxes we're making we have parts in motion to make sure that like they're picking it up from us and or it's getting dropped off at the right time and whatever you know so i, I think that like this is the the backside that you people don't see for sure you know like like the thought and the care that we're really trying to put in because we really value everybody who's like tapping in with us, you know? No doubt. I remember when I was young and stupid about a year ago, I used to like, I used to kind of hate on the vintage platform because I was like, oh, I can, I can go thrifting downtown and find something cool. But then I went thrifting downtown and I never found like a perfect pair of vintage jeans, right? Because I found like maybe an early 2000s pair or like even maybe a late 90s pair. I think I've, I've sold quite, I've sold a couple of them off. Mm -hmm. And when I finally found like, I, I again, I don't know exactly how old the pair is, but I believe it's like late 80s, early 90s in that range. I'm going to sound like a broken record for saying this. Now, a lot of like, a lot of people do say that the quality is a lot better, but it's fucking noticeable, man. It is, yeah. Thing. It really I didn't is. even realize. Yeah, I mean, a lot of our jeans um, for 501s, there's a different story for different um, cuts. You know what I mean? Like they were produced different places. It's this funny thing because we have like the uh, one guy in Singapore who's always hitting us up for like USA jeans. 
And it's funny to me because in my opinion, like based on like the texture, the weight, the feel, like all the 90s jeans are the same quality because if they weren't being produced in the US, they're being produced in the, in, in the EU or in the UK. And it's not like the sewing in the UK is worse than the sewing in the United States in the 90s or the sewing in France. Like a lot of them we sell are made in France. And to me, I'm like, wow, that's great. I feel like French, besides the US, the French had the, the highest number of workwear factories in the world you know like they were really really big in that world in, in the 20th century so it's like it's so noticeable you could like when like I said somebody was telling us like I like our jeans were like not 90s and I'm like bro we have literally handled tens of thousands of pairs physically like I've touched them I can t I can pull out of a stack blind whether or not it's from the 90s at this point because the thickness of the cotton is different you know what I mean like there's just things that are different like the tag was made of cotton you know, up until 2002. Actually, I've seen some pairs from 05 that were made in the USA, I think, and some like really random cases that had a cotton tag. But, you know, if we ever, and also mind you, if we do ever get a really good, like a pair that aesthetic, because we, we curate based on aesthetic, we don't curate necessarily on like rarity per se, like we go on color and aesthetic. So there is a rarity to like to the color and the demands for the colors we get, because even this, like, last week we had like crazy fades, like, you know, you can't manufacture that, you know, with the kind of color that fades out on 20 years of wear, 30 years, you know, the nineties were 30 years ago. But, um, it, you know, you can, you can just, if we do have a pair that's from the 2000s, once in a blue moon, we mark it as such. Price is reflective as such, you know what I mean? So it's like, we're, we're hyper aware of everything that we're doing as well. So it's like, we're never trying to pull the blinds over somebody, you know, it's like, we're marketing everything as such and accurately and like, we're also bear in mind, like we're treating this not like I said, as a vintage company. We treat this as a company. Company, we're a, we're like a we're a corporation now, like not like in the sense of like McDonald's, but we are a corp. Like we are founded. There's various aspects that come with that, but like when we approach our business, we're treating it like we're not just flipping stuff on the internet. We're trying to really like reach people in a broad sense. You know what I mean? And I I, I know I said that a second ago, but like just to reiterate that, like, and with your experience being in downtown and thrifting, it's like. I go thrifting in LA just to see what's good or like I want to find something for me go with my homies or like whatever and it's like I don't find anything <laughs> can't find now the internet again it's all picked over so like it is what it is it's like this kind of causation effect of like the good stuff is going online for a high price and you see that happen with like certain styles of things like the Carhartt Detroit jacket that everybody rocks and you're like I've never personally owned one for myself but like we've handled them it's not really a fixture for us because it's so popped it's so hype you know, it's like, we're not really trying to do that. We're just trying to do our own thing. But um, yeah, it, it makes sense. If you take the time to really get into like style in a larger sense of vintage is permeating beyond just being vintage. Like I'm, the text I'm getting for the people that want vintage now, it's way beyond just like dudes on the internet trying to impress each other. You know what I mean? 100% Matt. Bit of a bit of a weird question here, but what do you look for in like the perfect pair of vintage Levi's, either for personal use or for no maintenance? Besides, so, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Like besides, like when we like the, yeah, I feel like the approval for us is like we're not going to pull something that's not old. But um, I have quite a bit of them myself. Like I used to have a ton of helmet lang jeans. I don't have any of them. I, I literally don't own one now. Like I love helmet trousers and I love a like like you know, Japanese trousers, but like for jeans, like it, all my jeans are Levi's. I actually don't even own an indigo pair for myself, believe it or not, it's insane. But for me personally, what I'm looking for is definitely like, I don't like things skinny. Like I can't, like I'm slim, but I'm not rocking with like a skinny cut. And there was different like 501s that were kind of cut wider, slimmer, 
And like the one thing that people have to bear in mind too is like when you get vintage jeans and they've been washed, they're shrinking two to three tag sizes, but they're shrinking that in the waist mostly, like the proportions of the rest of the trouser may on a case by case basis be maintained. So I have a, I'm like a 29, right? I'm, I, on a good day, I might be a 30, I might be a 31, like I kind of fluctuate, but like let's say I'm a 29 steadily. I have a pair that's tagged to 33. So even by standard practice, it would like of shrinkage, it would be a 31. It has the cut of being a 33 pant. So like a size 29 or 30 might have like a 10.5 thigh. A size 33 might have a 13 or 12.75 thigh. And I like that. So for me personally, I'm looking for the bigger thigh. I'm belting it. I'm shrinking it in the dryer because I like that size up. And they do stretch out. So like if you get a pair that feels kind of tight and you, you are 29, and it's a tag 30 and it shrinks down, it most likely eventually will stretch back out to a 30. If you're nervous about that, you can just keep drying it or whatever, you know, it's just the nature of vintage jeans, you know. I personally look for pants that are baggier. I like a longer inseam. I like it when it stacks. I like, I really am not, I don't care if the hem is released or not. Like it depends on the pair for me. I do like this aesthetic of it. Like that's why we, we release the hems ourselves on the tons of a ton of pairs you know we leave some for the purists but like people really like that and we we know how to do it we do it quickly we do it cleanly like we're not poking holes in it so like i think people prefer that we do it than having them do it half of my pairs have them released i'm looking for a long inseam bag ear long inseam like i'm almost six feet i would say definitely six feet plus in shoes so i like it has to be a 32 inseam minimum for me and i like a 33 34 so it's just like kind of, and if you release the hem, you're getting another inch basically. So it's like, I like when it's kind of hitting the boot or the the the, the, um, the mule or whatever, like in a long way. Now for no maintenance, we, when we, when we, the perfect pair for me these days is like any nicely faded, but like not ridiculously faded and distressed. Like I'm not really rocking with distressed jeans. Like I personally don't want like blowouts in my knees you know, or even repairs. I like a really clean pimp because I feel like nowadays you can dress the jean up. Like I'm rocking my jean with more dressy pieces or whatever, you know? So when we pair for no maintenance, it's obviously pretty broad because we curate, you know, a thousand pairs a month at this point. So it's like, we're getting anything from a 23 to a 42 and different pairs in different colors have different attributes and different cuts. I still really, really think the 501 is the perfect cut. Like we've had, we used to do Japanese 502, too skinny for me, 503B, too skinny for me, 502XX. They're all just kind of slim. Those are like really beautiful, high quality Japanese selvage jeans. I would take the cut over the even higher quality cotton, you know. But for no maintenance, like the perfect pair is going to be like a, like a perfect faded olive or a faded like muted chocolate brown or something like that's really like a color in that palette for this year. I feel like those colors are really, really hitting more the, more so than even indigo. And um, if it just has a good fade and minimal, you know, damage to it and a good, like, you know, we don't like to get anything too short, even for women, you know, like we like to make sure that like our hems aren't like too short. We might get some of their 28s, but um, anyways, yeah, like I, I just, it comes down to color. Like if it, like the perfect pair to me comes down to like a, like a nice faded earth tone or whatever, you know, like naturally faded from wear or whatever. That's what, and, and fit, you know, you can't, can't have a good pair of pants without the fit period, you know? Absolutely. So, yeah, I would say that's, that would be how I would categorize it. Perfect, man. Tell us a little bit about the process for creating like either the camp collar shirts or the flared bondage pants from your namesake label. 
Yeah, so like I said, the names, like now we're so busy with no maintenance and I was doing the namesake label with uh, two two of my friends, like, because we were trying to, we we redeveloped the the site at that time and we were doing like, my, my friend who's a professional writer, um, we were having him write like articles that I really feel like no one else was, was like getting into at that time, like super, super fresh. And I got, all of his stuff got super plagiarized by a lot of people in our in our scene. But we were working on that, and then my my other friend, who's a who's a big coder, like was working on the back end of stuff, and they kind of gave me free reigns. Like we we were going in on the project together, but it was like, and it was, but it was my designs. I would show them stuff and swatches, but like that began like as a venture of like trying to expand out from curating niche goods, like I was saying earlier on. With the camp collar, I just like I got to a point where I realized like I prefer a camp collar cut over a regular like a straight cut or whatever you, they're called like a, any day because of a couple of reasons I think the camp collar looks elegant I think that like it has this nod to vintage you know 50s style popularized in different periods like like I said that was really big in the 90s which is why I'll get there in a sec like why a lot of Japanese brands were doing camp collars in the 90s but I just really like the fit and I like how you can rock a camp collar with a jacket without it looking like you're super like like if you like have your collar like like you're super tight here and like have it all buttoned up because it falls flatly it's like super neat we were getting a lot of camp collars in for the shop like i was really doing like that was something that i was personally like into so i was getting like a lot of camp collars to be semiaki and like komegosan and yoji like but the the good ones like would always fly and then the, some of the other ones like the cuts would be undesirable to me so i was like look why don't we look at all of these camp collars we're getting in and make what I determined to be the perfect shape. Like we took a, a shape, a base of a comb shirt that was kind of cut a size up. And a lot of those CDG pieces don't have like a, like a, a readily available size on it. Like you might not see like if it's tagged, you know, a medium or whatever. And we determined it to be like a large size shirt. And then I, I took the shape of it and I said, okay, cool. This is too big. Let's, and the fabric felt cheap. It was like a, it was like a kind of like lower quality, like, CDG has incredible fabrics, but sometimes they will use like a lower quality fabric. It just comes down to the collection, the year, as opposed to their, you know, their runway label was always like random ready to wear. And before Dover Street Market was exported to the rest of the world, it was only available in Japan. So it was like super, super like low key, just ready to wear garments for the Japanese consumer that was eventually in Dover Street London and then Dover Street New York following that and now Dover Street LA. But those pieces sometimes were just never that crazy of a high quality to me. And so like, I was like, okay, cool. Let's find a manufacturer locally in LA and make the perfect shirt based on shape. So we took this shape and then I, and then I, we, I sketched it out and I cut in the sides. I took it in on the sides, took it in up in the length, but I kept the longer arms and the bigger proportion. So it's like, I, I always tell people to like size down because it's like our large fits like XL to M fits like a M to L s like i don't there isn't even really a small size but like i like that i want it to be like a unisex yoji vibe um and so it was like everybody works off of references at this point there's no secret but i didn't want it just to be like a blatant co copy because a lot of these brands these days it really is like the carbon copy of their predecessors work it's like virtual abloh maintains this rule called the three percent rule let me take something right I'm, you're not if you're familiar with it, it's like let me take something and change it three percent i didn't want to just do a three percent change because to me changing the material is more than a three percent change because we went from like a lot of these camp collars were polyester fabrics and a good one might be like a rayon you know like a, an artificial rain that was super silky but i was like cool let's find a domestically grown linen so we got like the most expensive like 
and high quality linen we could find through a manufacturer, which was actually grown in North Carolina sustainably. So like that, check my list. Then I, we did Italian uh, horn buttons. So like we found the perfect button for like a shirt because I didn't want to do wood. I didn't want to do like mother of pearl because sometimes like our legacy uses mother of pearl and like kind of like contrast too much for my eyes. So I wanted it to be like a really nice like matte horn button. And then we picked Pantones. Like I didn't want it to be a pure white and I didn't want it to be a jet black because I feel like a jet black shirt looks like a waiter shirt. We did like, I was always, always called it like with the pants like a vintage black because I didn't want those to be jet black because it was like, it was a cotton twill on the pants. It wasn't a wool. Wool black is different black than a cotton twill. So my mind just came out of like these like initial pieces that I, I saw there was desire for. And with the pant, I mean, the pant, like we st I still have some shirts because I released it like at a weird time. I basically dropped it like in September before it got cold everywhere, which was on the flip side of like, now we're dropping flannels or whatever. But I, uh we the shirt came out of like that whole process and then the pants we were like following up and we, i wanted to do a whole line of like pieces that i was rocking with and create like a series of shapes that we would just do in different fabrics because those bondage pants obviously you could make them without the strap and they would just be like a nice fitting straight fit trouser you know and i took that initial shape off of a helmet pant obviously like everybody was referencing helmet like you had the bougie day cargos and you had all the trickle down effect of the brands copying bougie day cargos which is almost a complete one-to-one -one of a helmet cargo, you know, the, the flared one. And I didn't look at those pants and say, oh, I want to make my own bondage pants. You know, I had a pair of helmet pants that had a, an elastic band and I, I actually got the pants dead stock. So this goes to show like even helmet, we use some cheap materials as well. Like depending on the period, like of the factory they were working in, like nine, I think 97 to 99, they worked with GTR, which is a super high quality Italian factory. I think after that they had to expand there was the private partnership with prada they were just pushed to move 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 and so there was material like that was not that great sometimes and the helmet lang elastic always felt kind of shitty and even after having dead stock pants after wearing them for a year you can't wash them so you're getting dry cleaned or whatever even dry cleaning only i saw the elastic was kind of wearing down and it's non-functional it's a it's a it's creates the flare effect 100 percent of the time so i was thinking how do we take this pant that's a, a creating a flare effect and make it a modular design. How do we take it and say, cool, like let's actually make this functional. Helmet didn't make those pants functional. The Vuja Day ones, it wasn't a functional flare. It was just like a tightening. And those are great pants. I'm not by any means not talking those down. I'm just saying like, I wanted to specifically make a trouser in the year that the flare pant was really getting popular again and say, cool, I want people to have like the modularity of this and let's make a trouser that like a, a tech pant but in a non-tech fabric because you'll have arcturic pants with belt tied in or the drawstring or whatever you know on the bottom but i wanted to like kind of you know mess that up mix it up and make something that was actually functioning and we did all that in la with the manufacturer here which is incredibly expensive like i've told everybody we didn't make any money on the pants because we, we went so out on the sampling and i sent a pair to travis scott and i did all these things that like behind the scenes that they're expensive you know and it's like I really am happy with how that project came out though. Cause I just know like I can go to sleep. It took so long. The COVID delays were real. Like they really were horrible. Like every week I'll check with the manufacturer. Like, sorry, the factory from Italy hasn't sent it. Sorry, they haven't sent it. And mind you, when we made the pant, the shirts last summer in COVID, we made and produced more units of the shirts than the pants in three weeks. So that's when I went into the pant project thinking we made these shirts, which are only a little bit less complicated than the pants. 
this will be easy. And I told everybody four to six weeks, whatever. And suddenly it took four to six weeks to get the fabric. And then Christmas hits and manufacturing shuts down in the, in the US over Christmas because they don't take breaks. Just like how China shuts down over Chinese New Year. Then when everybody's slow and then suddenly the manufacturer, when you're doing a small brand is like, oh shit, we have a bazillion big brands in the pipeline who we have to prioritize. Your little project, we're just going to knock it out. Because when they actually finally got the, the fabric from Italy and they dyed it, which took two weeks to do all that, when it finally happened and everything synced up, the sewing was quick. Like the actual assembly of the pants was like 10 days, but it was just these, uh, like these delays related to like, um, like the pipeline of manufacturing, if you will. But um, as far as that went, it was just an absolutely fantastic learning venture because now we're, we have like 20 products in the pipeline that Roe and I are designing as opposed to working separately. And it's like, we have a million things going, like we're making products you wouldn't even think that we were making at this point, you know? And um, <clears throat> learning on how to manufacture, how to negotiate with people, how to do the deal with delays, deal with even the psyche, the psyche, the psyche related to like, or the psychological impact of um, having a bunch of people writing all the time. And everyone was super relaxed and chill, except for like three people were like a little pressed the whole time. And I was always like, look, Anytime you want, I, I will get, like, I made these, I would always reiterate, like, look, if you ordered these pants for me, I made them for you specifically. I knew I could always sell them if I had to, because there was demand there, but I didn't really want to deal with that. And like, I, I'm so happy that pant, the pant project is behind. I think it's something I'm going to be really proud of looking back on it, because I, like I said, I, I don't go to sleep at night thinking, man, like, we skimped on that project. Like we, we imported Italian fabric. We got us, you know, buttons and everything like same with the shirt, like everything on that was like, to try and match or surpass the quality of the helmet pants that we were wearing at the time, you know? So that's kind of how, how it, it happened. And that was my, my design process really like pretty straightforward. And I think it is of, of this generation of being online. It's like, what makes sense? What do I wanna wear? You listen to a podcast with the dudes who do bare knuckles, for example, in our lane, adjacent lane, or they've been around for a while. They wanted to make stuff for themselves and we're no different. And I don't know, even there's so many brands that are popping right now, there's nothing like making something for yourself that you, that people are responding to because it's going to be cut in completely to match the hole in your wardrobe. And that was kind of our, our main like, um, motivation behind it. And same with what we're making now. It's like, we have all these things that we're making that I have are pieces that I haven't even dreamt of buying, but I would wear them if it was the right piece, you know? And that's been our transition or, or pro approach to no maintenance was like, how do we come at this and make something like way more wide scale, like scalable, popular for a lot of people and also attainable, make the price point attainable. Because like I said, we can't do what we do for a living if we don't make money. Don't make any money on pants, you know what I mean? That costs you a ton of money to do because you're trying to make the quality and then your competitors are making like, they're drop shipping stuff from China and it's costing them a fraction of the price. You know what I mean? So it's like, how do you find the balance between these things with scale and with aesthetics that appeal to more people? Because I feel like for some people, the bondage pants might even be too edgy. They're not edgy pants by any means, but just even the name for people, you know what I mean? Like bondage or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, my, my motivation and our motivation will continue to be making pieces for ourselves that we rock. I'm in a piece. I'm, both of these pieces I'm wearing right now, we made.
And it's like, that's the first thing. And I was like, I'm in some Levi's or I'm in this, you know? And I, I, don't, I hope that that doesn't change anytime soon. Because I, and I don't think it will. Beautiful, man. It's stories like that, that kind of make me want to start my own brand in like yeah. a weird way. Like, I, like again, like same as you, like I see that there's holes in the market where there's something that like, I've never found the perfect thing. And I feel like I might be able to make it like this hoodie that I'm wearing. It's from represent. Mm -hmm. It's like their gym hoodie from like, however many years ago, I found it on Grailed. It's almost perfect, but like the sleeves are too short and the hood is too small. So like, I might mess around with like trying to like replicate it, trying to make it perfect yeah. and then see where it goes from there. Um, yeah. It's a lot of work to get into it, but yeah, I feel like starting with an idea like that is the trick. You know, I was talking to another homie who's, got a pretty good size page but he hasn't transitioned into being a brand yet and i was just asking him like what's your motivation like for starting a brand like are you trying to do a brand or are you trying to make a piece because like, i'm trying to make a piece and i always feel like that's a great jumping off point you know like, we, I'm, I'm not sitting here preaching like i know what we're doing we're learning as we go you know we've barely been around but i feel like if i were this is how we got into it the same way like we weren't sitting there like with my namesake brand or whatever it's like i wasn't sitting there like cool i want to make this line that's going to be on essence next year that's going to have 25 pieces on the trend cycle i was saying let's like you were just saying like let's make let's fill the hole let's make something that can be repeated worn at different materials different fabrics different shapes it's an interesting time to get into clothing manufacturing as well because it's never been more drop shipped than just like shipping your idea off to someone and they'll execute it for you too you know for good reason or not good reason socially or culturally but like it makes sense why a business would you know, basically put it in a pipeline of like, cool, I have an idea. Let me, you know, get some artists to draw it up for me and I can just send it to a warehouse of manufacturing or a manufacturing team and they'll just execute it for me and I'll just, you know, sell it. Makes sense, you know? Clothing is so popular. It's like everybody has to be get fits on, even if they don't care about fits, you know? Like, I feel like that's the vibe these days. Definitely. I don't want to keep like buttering you up, but like, I initially like got put onto you guys from like from Rose like YouTube channel back in the day. And then I saw that he like had a brand like Lake Vienna and stuff. And then I actually I picked up the necklace that he had, like the compromise necklace. Oh, and yeah, then yeah. I was told on his like creativity, like I wear this thing every day. I think it's it's like the most beautiful thing that I like one of the most beautiful like jewelry pieces. And then I, I've heard about you and then I found your pants. And like again, like those pants are gonna become daily drivers, like when all this stuff opens up, like even around the house, like I just wear them yeah. around the house because it's so like they're so amazing. So like, I'm hundred percent sold on you guys. And I'm really excited to like, to see what you guys come up with in the future. Well, I appreciate it, man. It means a lot. You know, we couldn't be where we're on the journey, where we're headed, wherever that destination is without, you know, people rocking with us. And I feel like our main motivation is to also be accessible and like, you know, try to just not just price point, but also like um, the philosophy of what we're doing. We're just trying to be available, tap in with people and like, one of the main things we're working on right now is we have um, our, our showroom is getting built right now. We have a big, big space getting built out for us in, in LA. And it's like, we wanted to make it like an opportunity for people to come and tap in with us. And, you know, we're going to have to figure out the fine details of that because we didn't want to do a traditional retail model. You know, we didn't want to like open up on Fairfax and compete with the gallery department with 20,000 followers, because I've seen what it's like to be a small brand and pay $10,000 a month on rent and go bankrupt because you are relying on the foot traffic. And I'm not saying that that's the position we're in. I'm also not saying that that's what will happen to us. I'm just saying like, we just didn't even want to go down that lane, you know? 
but in terms of where we're going it's just like we just want to we were trying to do all those instagram lives too and it's like obviously we're like i try to explain to people how busy we are like we really like we were doing those lives when we when we didn't have um like a team working with us you know people that we got to work around and our full-time assistant as well like it's like hard to go on ig live in the middle of the day if you're like doing a a million like physically manual labor we do like you know when we're boxing and no, and I enjoy doing all that stuff too. It's like it's a learning thing, you know. I don't know if we'll be boxing our own boxes forever, but it's like one of those things of like we box thousands of boxes now, and I know the experience, and we can um, understand what the person who will maybe be taking that task on is going through in terms of the labor or what they need or the why there was a hiccup in the line or whatever. Like you know, I love doing all that. Like it's been cool that we've done our all of our own. We've done everything for ourselves, you know every position has been worked by us definitely uh without um, giving too much away like what can we expect to see in the coming year coming year well definitely like just what i just said like we're working on our space so that's actually going to be open in june i think if there's no delays um we are doing like it's getting completely custom built out we designed the space so like we didn't just like rent a space and like take it as it is like or we worked with the, the developer to like there's walls going up. We have like a modular wall to open up the showroom and close off the office in it. So it's going to be like, we're creating a, like a really cool experience, but we're just trying to uh, get everything super, super dialed in. Like I ha- we, I think no maintenance women's, it's going to be a really big focal point for us in the, in the summer going forward. Once we have a space, we want to take a different approach than how we approach men's menswear or like, you know, we do unisex stuff and we sell to quite a bit of women now, but like I actually really want to go hard with the women's side of things. So everything is kind of going to be a revolving around this space because it's opening up so many potentials for us in terms of just hosting like people, hosting meetings. We're going to have a photo studio in there. So we're going to be able to like be doing a lot of work on models. We're going to be able to shoot editorials. So pair that with like not giving away the pieces we're making per se, but like we do have a lot of items being designed in terms of we have winter outerwear we're designing right now for like you know, spring, uh, autumn, winter 21 and spring, summer 22, like that window dropping, you know, sometime end of this year and early next year. So we're like, we're that far out in terms of designing now. So we've got winter outerwear, we've got, you know, when, like fall basics, we've got a whole basics line we're developing right now of like, you know, we've been teasing our hoodies, but we're like, not just doing like black hoodie that we're making 50 of and selling out. Like we're really going full sweat, like brand of, of basics that we have. 10, 15 colors developed already in terms of perfect colors and washes. And we sampled the hoodie six times in terms of shape and, and weight to, to get it perfect. You know what I mean? Like each time we did it, we, we made it heavier. So, you know, we'll, we'll be announcing a lot of details related to that for sure in the near future. I think people can just expect like us to be a constant force moving forward. Like we're not going to take any long breaks between collections at this point, because we're not doing collections. We're doing, you know, groupings and pieces and, I think everything's going to be building around uh, our space because we can only host our brand through having an office and a hybrid showroom space. Um, so I think people can just expect a lot from us. We're making some home goods. We're doing all kinds of stuff in terms of like what we're, like I said, we're making whatever we can't find, you know. And I, and I think that people will be happy with the prices that we're dropping stuff for and the, and the quality that we're taking to make in terms of like making our hoodie and we're taking risks too we're not just taking like a russell hoodie and saying okay cool like let's replicate this like our hoodie shape is a unisex super boxy 
it's cropped on some men it's baggy on some guys it's oversized on some girls it just depends on your height and your weight but like we're taking risks in our shape too we're taking what we learned and absorbed from the all the brands that we liked whether it's even like more contemporary balenciaga or it's like 80s levi's or 70s levi's or pieces from the 60s or it's the 90s stuff that we got got into this with, with so like we're just trying to be on our la our kind of wellness our like high quality earth outdoors color palette mixed with japanese laid back streetwear you know like i know that sounds broad and it's hard to envision it but like it will come together and when people see the kind of range of stuff we're doing like when like there's gonna be individual pieces for everybody somebody could wear everything we're making but also the motivation is to get stuff for people who oh i don't want jeans but i want a perfect hoodie oh i don't want a hoodie i want x oh and we've got our first piece i think that's gonna line up will be our summer silk shirt that we're dropping um whenever it's in production right now so whenever whenever we get all the units in for that but like i feel like that shirt could be on anybody as well you know so without giving too much away i feel like things we've talked about and we will not have kind of like like talked about talk like we know what's cool to share at this point and like what's not to share because i'm also aware of like all the people like really really peeping and like ready to like like I know Reese Cooper said he doesn't put an ID on Instagram before trademarking it. Like he literally will not post a product without trademarking it. And I understand why. Yeah, I've seen the back end. I see like the brands who will just literally just like fast fashion it, you know. And it's not really my concern because I think people are going to come to us for our, the original product. But in terms of just like other people kind of catching on to you, like I've already seen with the way that we do photography, like Ro does a lot of the photography these days. And um, I've already seen with the Instagram pages with us, and it is what it is. You don't own a photo, like uh, you know, a style of photography. But our motivation with the no maintenance fee was never to just post a product shot. We're like, how can we go as long as possible without just posting a T-shirt on the ground? Because what does every single shop on Instagram look like? T-shirt on a concrete ground. And I think that that's going to be our approach to our brand. We're just we're staying, we're pivoting. We're always pivoting and and maintaining like you know it's, it's nice because we have different approaches and we can have different skill sets and row and i can like go and handle different aspects of our business and it really helps to be like have the same vision align in the end though and that is no maintenance is a brand more than it is going to be just a, a platform for reselling or curating like used goods per se perfect man i'm I'm not really one of those individuals who gets like super excited about like current like current like fashion shows and like current like trends and stuff or even like what a brand is like necessarily like coming out with next season but the exception to that is like what you guys you and Ro are putting out so like I'm again I'm very excited to see to see what you guys come up I appreciate with appreciate that yeah I'm looking forward to sharing it you know because it won't be like the the trend cycle it is it's just the nice thing about being your own brand and being privately owned essentially like without taking investment from a bigger brand or company or like whatever we have direct say of like what we're putting out and when we're putting it out the internet has you know Hama Lang was the first to drop a, a fashion show on the internet he quit Paris moved to New York did it online we're many years beyond that at this point but the the effect of not having to put stuff out based on this antiquated view of spring and summer and the waste that goes into designing for sales, you know, it's just like, that's just the opposite of what we're doing. 
Definitely. So, yeah, man. Is there anything else you want to touch on? Uh, I've got two more questions here. Uh, do you have any book Ooh. recommendations for me? Yeah, I do. Let me think. I was a creative writing minor at UCLA in college, but my my reading time has really, really, really reduced. I used to I used to have the opportunity to read every day. I really like um like I'm I'm, I'm my dad's from Chile. So I'm half South American or half like Latino. So like I really, really like resonate personally with like a lot of like authors from you know those parts of the world because I, I feel a, like a, a heritage. I feel like a, a connection, especially when they're like a like a Latino author in the USA because I relate to it being a first gen here. And I can feel like the stories of their parents, and even if it's a different story, like anyways, I, I like that genre like style of like South American like short story, creative nonfiction came out of like the era like the, the predecessor of magical realism and stuff like that so like like on a more like academic sense i always feel like you people should read borges like and like the book of sand is super super great or the alif that's all argentinian short stories in english obviously he spoke english fluently he was a diplomat super super hard i think more contemporary there's a chilean author i really like and who's not that well known called alejandro zembra and i think he is really really cool uh novels that aren't too hard to get into about like human connection and emotion and politics and whatever there's a Peruvian author I like who's based in New York who writes for the New Yorker called his name is Daniel El Arcon he teaches at NYU in the school of journalism I think his story um or his novel um at night we walk in circles is really really good and I, I wasn't sure if I was going to get into it at first and I, and I did um, these are like, you know, my biases of being into like South American authors. Obviously, I think that there's, you know, plenty of like people that you got to touch base on. Like everybody was rocking with Camus last year. I feel like everybody posted like a Camus book, but Stranger is awesome. So is um, the myth of, myth of Sisyphus. Like all these books are pretty, and that's essays. But I feel like if you haven't read Camus, people should tap in with Camus. Or if you haven't read Camus, Camus, the absurdism, it's really, really great. Um let me think if there's anybody else in terms of like read like a lot of like essays too like I really like the work of like Kafka and uh I think reading people like Kafka can really help like challenge your worldview and your perspective you know like if I'm not mistaken I read his autobiography it's like the autobiography of um I don't know if it's called it's not semiology I mean let me look it up here um uh, Kafka autobiology oh the biology autobiography my biology excuse me what's it called anyways i'll send it over to you i can't remember the name off the top of my head but i really think that that was that was good yeah okay. oh no it's not kafka man sorry it's um i'm thinking nabokov his his autobiography nabokov who he wrote lolita and a bunch of other things but um yeah but i feel like that touches on like kind of some 20th century philosophy and some like 21st century like lighthearted but not human I like humans human connection you know what I mean beautiful man um where can the people find you plug plug everything that you got going on man most importantly you can find this on no maintenance that's like the main I care about um obviously you can still tap in with whatever I end up doing with uh, shop don't tell on our other Instagram platform although still trying to figure out what that's going to be 
and then obviously myself, my name, Sebastian Rog, I don't really post that much anymore. I'm, and I'm trying to continue to re reduce my time on, on my own Instagram because we're so busy and glued to our phones with no maintenance. So like I'm trying, I've posted twice on that this, this year. I'm trying to keep it like under four posts and not really being engaged, but follow me on there. I'm around this. I use it as like a, as a tool for connecting with friends and whatever, you know what I mean? Marketing, self-marketing. It is what it is. So yeah, Sebastian Moraga, No Maintenance, Shop Don't Tell, those are the big three. And start with No Maintenance if you don't know me Perfect. or know us because that's 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 our passion right now. Awesome, man. And th those are all going to be listed, linked in the show notes of the podcast as well for whoever's cool, listening. Cool. And yeah. All right, man, that's pretty much it. Thank right. you so much for taking the time and I learned a lot from our conversation. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to me. I feel like I can rant a little bit. So it's nice to nice to chat. You're good, man. No worries. We finally were able to make it line up. Absolutely, man. Absolutely.